I know you, you've been a, a advising the Biden campaign. I advised Biden on deep fakes uh, two years ago. Do we have the technology right now that could go through and be like fake, 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 and then there's like one real one in there and be like real? <laughs> so right, ish. Could you have a tool that gives you like a spectrum of probability? Yeah. And, and that is how those detection tools work right now. The ones that are already out there, they're like, oh, this is 90% probably synthetic. But in four years time, when it is time for the next election, some experts who I speak to think that as much as 90% of video content online could be synthetic. So, th- oh, so gosh. I think there's a short window in which something can still be done. I mean, a democracy can only work, a liberal democracy can only work if you have some kind of objective reality and some commitment to truth and the pursuit of truth. If the pursuit of truth no longer matters, then the only thing that matters is power. And now it's my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, author, expert on deepfakes and AI and misinformation, commentator, uh, trained at Cambridge University, among other places, the amazing Nina Schick. Nina, welcome. Great to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Oh, I think you're uh, hammering away at themes that, that are so important and that people are not paying enough attention to. Uh, so how did you come to become an expert on AI and deep fakes? Uh, because most of us know that they exist, uh, but we haven't spent years studying them the way that you have. Well, Andrew, my background really is in geopolitics and information warfare. So I come at it from a kind of national security angle. And I've spent the last decade really working at the heart of some of the huge political events in Europe and across the pond in the United States, looking at kind of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what's happened around the Brexit vote, what happened in 2016 with the US election, and increasingly been starting to see how the information ecosystem is corroding to the extent that the age of information, which has been around for the last few decades, really has become the age of disinformation. It's dominated by bad information. And this was something that we saw state actors taking advantage of in the past few years, but increasingly also something that, you know, influencers and lone politicians are uh, using to their own benefit, not to mention the president of the United States. So when the kind of recent emerges of the AI community in the form of deepfakes started to come out in the last two and a half years, it was like, oh my goodness, this is the most potent disinformation tool that is about to hit. We've been terrible at handling the corrosion of our information ecosystem for the past 10 years. We are not ready for the age of synthetic media. So that's really how I came to it from a kind of geopolitical angle, but it's far, far broader than that. And it's pervasive in every aspect of life. Synthetic media, uh, is that simply anything that I alter? So if I were to take a photo of myself and then, uh, you know, uh, make myself look better, <laughs> like, like does, that, does that count as synthetic media? Or, or is it strictly if you're doing something where it's um, uh, deeply false and misinforming? 
Yeah, so, I mean, as long as like the visual media has been around, humans have been trying to tamper with it, right? Not to mention, for example, in the 20th century, Stalin was doing that. He had a whole cottage industry of craftsmen who had tried to manipulate photographs to kind of smooth out his pockmarked face. However, that at that time, without modern technology, it was pretty difficult to do. But increasingly over the past few decades, you know, as things like Photoshop and Instagram filters have become more accessible, it's become easier to tamper media. But synthetic media is the next step in the evolution of tampering with media because what synthetic media is, is media. So it could be a, an image, a video or a piece of audio that is wholly or partially generated by AI. And what that means is it's going to make it easier than ever before to create high fidelity fake video, audio, and images at a scale that we have not seen um, until this until this point. So the deep fake that people might be acquainted with, uh, and you include a couple examples in your book, Deep fakes, the coming infocalypse by Nina Schick. So if you are freaked out by this stuff and want to see what the background is and what the future can look like, uh, this is the book for you. I learned a lot from it. Uh, so the most prominent examples that people might have encountered, there, there was a video of Barack Obama uh, saying things that he never said that was produced uh, with BuzzFeed. Um, there were, I, I believe, some celebrity fake porn not, not that I've seen them, but I know that they're, that they're out there, that like people are putting celebrity faces on uh, other people. Um, so those are some of the examples of synthetic media that people might have seen. Uh, are there other ways that we encounter synthetic media, like maybe without even knowing it? Well, Andrew, we are just at the start of the synthetic media revolution. And as in so many things, porn has been pioneering. It's only been a practical reality for about two and a half years. This is when kind of the AI research became a practical reality. And it started on Reddit, where an anonymous user calling himself Deepfakes made these synthetic video creations, which were fake porn of um, non-consensual fake porn of female celebrities. And since then, that's when I first encountered it at the end of 2017. We have started to see deepfakes leeching out into politics, um, not only to politics, but into business life. For example, there was a huge instance last year of a CEO who was conned out of $250,000 because some crook used a deepfake to emulate his boss, calling him and telling him to wire money. But the most prominent use case so, still... So deepfake still, could, could be one of those kind of mission possible sort of voice simulator things too. So people are thinking of it as an image, but it could be an audio. Yeah, it can be a video or an audio. And I think the number one thing to impress on to the listeners is that basically AI is getting sophisticated enough to hijack your biometrics. So I take my AI machine learning system and I feed it training data, which in this instance, if I want to emulate you, Andrew, I can take a clip of your voice. Unfortunately, there's a lot of video of me. You could probably you, get, you get, get, be, get a pretty good one. You would be an easy person to deep fake because of your public profile. I could just go on the internet, find a bunch of videos, find a bunch of audio clips, 
feed that into my machine learning system so the AI can be trained to emulate your voice, your likeness, and then I can make fake audio clips of you or I can make fake video clips of you saying or doing anything. And because this technology really is still so nascent, we're only at the very beginning, it's getting better so much quicker than, um, it's getting better so quickly that soon, it's not even people who are only in the public eye, but anybody. So if there's a five second clip of you, there's a video of you on Facebook, um, anywhere on the internet, you also are fair game. So it's not only celebrities or politicians who are in the firing line, it's really everybody. And you already see that because in the first use case, non-consensual pornography, normal women are already being targeted. So when you see what's happening in porn, it doesn't take much to realize how that's going to percolate into politics. Um, it's going to shape geopolitics, and it's also going to be something that every private citizen and every business needs to mitigate against. So you referenced the fact that uh, Stalin had been doctoring his photos for a long time. Uh, and in your book, you catalog Russian leadership in this space. It seems like Russia has been um, investing significant resources in misinformation for quite some time. Uh, can you talk about those investments that, that, that they've made uh, and what those resources look like? Yeah, so I my premise is that our entire information ecosystem has become increasingly untrustworthy and dangerous. And I start my story really with Russia because Russia is the master of disinformation. And before our entire information ecosystem became broken, Russia was channeling the spirit of bad information. Even during the Cold War, um, they were masters of disinformation and used that really to punch above their geopolitical weight. So one really famous and audacious disinformation campaign that the Soviets ran in the 1980s was the lie that the CIA invented um, HIV AIDS in order to kill African-Americans. Now, in the 1980s- that was in them? That was them. And you, you know that that is now still a cultural reference point. It's mentioned in The Wire. It's mentioned in you know, some rap songs. It is something that disproportionately affects, if you talk to public health officials, African-American community to this day. Um, in the 1980s, that myth took 10 years to go viral. However, now, the Russian strategy has not changed, but what has changed is the information ecosystem and the tools which they can use to infiltrate our kind of um, national debate. And they did that to great effect in 2016. So in 2013, the Russians were very, very quick to set up, they call it- So, so just to, to rewind for a second, so they've been doing yeah. this since the yeah. 1980s. So they've got 40 yeah. years of yeah. experience with this. And you reference the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, in your book. Uh, and so it, it brought to mind for me that there are buildings full of hundreds of Russian um, engineers and disinformers. Uh, one of the, the reasons why I was so struck by this track record is that I ran for president, which most people know. And um, what, what you're doing often is you're creating or your uh, supporters are creating various social media accounts and they're a relatively recent vintage. So they, they could be you know, two weeks old, two months old. I mean, you know, like there, there was no like Nebraska for Yang before, <laughs> you know, like quite recently. So then like if a social media account pops up, you're like, oh, that makes sense. 
Um, but in, in some of these cases, Russia has been planting these seeds for years and years. So you could show up on the scene and see some social media account that's been in place for like eight or 10 years, which makes it seem very, very uh, real. You know, it, it seems like, well, there's no way someone could have faked this. Uh, where, where, And even for an, a normal user, when someone um, says something to you that's like, you know, nasty or, or, or whatever, and then you go to their account and you're like, oh, this is like a brand new account. Like, this thing's not even real. <laughs> this is totally a bot. Um, but uh, in Russia's case, they've actually been creating accounts for so long that you could stumble upon an account. It could be eight, 10 years old with thousands of followers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the architecture of our information ecosystem, I mean, social media, smartphones haven't been around for that long. Russia has played the long game. So when it came to the influence operations in the US, they started in 2013, three years before the US election actually happened. And what they did was create, like you mentioned, these social media accounts where they posed as authentic Americans and played identity politics. So they built groups across the political spectrum. So it wasn't just them agitating kind of in favor of Trump supporters. They were building groups across the political spectrum and they had a two-pronged strategy. The first was to build up tribal identity. So it could be, you know, on the right for kind of gun owners or Texas secessionists. And on the left, they disproportionately targeted the African-American community. And what they did after they built up these tribal identities, as we got closer to, to the election, was inject these groups full of political grievances. Often they would be legitimate political grievances. And in the case of the African-American community, as we got closer to the election, it was in order to make sure that they didn't go and vote. So saying things like Hillary Clinton is not a president for black Americans, neither is Donald Trump, we need to sit this one out. We don't know to, so I think it'd be foolish to say that the election was swung by the Russians, but what is an uncontrovertible truth, um, something that all of the US intelligence agencies have now established is that they intervened in the public debate. So it's very alarming to see that this is something that the president of the United States refuses to engage with and something that's become such a politicized issue in the United States, because what that means is we can't defend against this enemy who is trying to break American democracy from within. So this image of a building and hundreds of Russian engineers uh, and designers and uh, content creators, that's real. Like, like there is that building. There are these hundreds of, of people. They've been doing it for years and even decades. Um, to the extent that we have any measurements around the scale of the resources, do we know how many people work at the Internet Research Agency uh, in Russia and do they have any legitimate opportunity? <laughs> do they have any legitimate activities, or is like the entire internet research agency just um, just uh, pitting Americans and I assume Europeans and other people in other parts of the world, like uh, creating fake accounts and pitting us against each other? Well, I in my book I quote um, a Soviet KGB defector. He gave an interview in the nineteen. 19- 
1984, in which he said that the majority of the resources of the KGB, uh, the forebear to the Russian intelligence services, was spent on spreading disinformation, right? So it wasn't on spying as such. It was actually to spread disinformation so that your enemy or your target is inundated with so much information that they can't come to the right conclusion in their own national interest or in their own interest. So the IRA has a tremendous amount of resources. The Russian state vests a lot of resources into disinformation operations. It's something that has always allowed it to punch geopolitically above its weight. Um, but the, I would, the other point I would say is that they're always looking for ways to evolve because having a bunch of agents in St. Petersburg is what they did in 2013. But in 2020, what the IRA has been doing is actually getting agents on the ground in Ghana posing, by the way, as though they were working for a human rights agency to spread this kind of content on American social media platforms. So it's become quite easy to infiltrate the public debate even with a limited amount of resources in the sense that some of this stuff was paid for, but a lot of it just goes viral organically and you don't even need that many agents to start making an impact. Why would they cite that uh, in this, in Ghana at a human rights uh, or sounds like a fake human rights organization? Um, is that because our countermeasures uh, are somehow less effective if they're coming at it from uh, another location? Well, I mean, it's in order, I mean, they've been tremendously, you know, creative in a way when it comes to finding ways to disrupt American democracy. So the MO in 2016 to uh, 2013 to 2016 was the troll factory in St. Petersburg, right? By the way, that was only one way in which they intervened in the American election. Uh, another thing that they did was the classic hacking and dumping the DNC server, we know that, as well as attacking election infrastructure. The social media uh, influence operations that I'm talking about, they're inventing new ways to do it because we, they know that the intelligence service, the intelligence agencies know what the IRA did last time around. So this time, when you have the front in Ghana, and the interesting thing about the front in Ghana was that a lot of the people who were hired at this human rights agency, they were basically given a lot of the memes and the content that went organically viral in 2016. They didn't know that they were working for the IRA. They thought they were legitimately posting social media content for this human rights organization in Ghana, because a lot of it, again, was focused at the African-American community. So they're just very creative at finding ways to use the architecture of our information ecosystem to meet their geopolitical aims. Um, yes, and they have a ton of experience at it. It was really fascinating in your book, seeing just how deeply rooted in um, their approach to, to international <laughs> relationships, that, that they just feel like they benefit if other governments or other societies cannot come together. Uh, and that felt very dark, but also it, it made a lot of sense. I think you referred to Putin as something of like a real life uh, James Bond supervillain. Yeah, and I, I think this is really um, what's at stake here with this election, not only for the US, but for the rest of the world. Because whilst 
um, foreign disinformation, foreign interference has been happening, and Russia is really what I say the master at this kind of operations. Yeah, and, and there was a Princeton study that said that. Uh, well, so you cited two studies. One was that um, we're up to 70 countries that are participating in some form of disinformation, up from maybe a couple dozen uh, a number of years ago. But a 2019 study said that Russia alone is responsible for 72% of all disinformation <laughs> that they could find. So even though there are a lot of players, this really does seem like, um, like a, a Russian near monopoly. Absolutely. But that is starting to change. And uh, when we look at foreign disinformation operations, Russia undoubtedly is the most sophisticated. But now more of the rogue and authoritarian nation states in the world are starting to get in the game, notably China. China has been very good at disinformation traditionally at its own population, where it has a long-term strategy just like Russia does. But due to the Hong Kong protests last year and with COVID, where it has so much to lose geopolitically, China has started to become more like Russia in its information operations. They've been aggressively trying to penetrate Western social media platforms to do the same kind of chaos strategy that Russia has been doing since kind of 2013 to great effect. But aside from all of the foreign state actors who are in the game, we can't talk about how damaged our information ecosystem is without recognizing our homegrown disinformation in the West. And arguably the biggest and most potent and most dangerous player in when it comes to Western disinformation is none other than the leader of the free world. So given that this is what America is facing, and I know that a lot of the attention on the election will be domestic, but it has meaning for the rest of the Western world as well, because all of the authoritarian leaders will be looking at Trump and being like, well, if that's the game he's playing, then why should we not do the same? This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. The picture you paint is very, very concerning. And it seems like a lot of the disinformation um, capitalizes on social media. And 
one of the things that we've been hammering uh, on the podcast is that negative ideas and sentiments spread more powerfully and quickly on Facebook and, and social media platforms um, than positive ones. And so, uh, you know, I think that that benefits people who are trying to sow mistrust uh, and these negative ideas. Uh Let's say magically I were just to turn off all social media. <laughs> not not to say that's plausible or desirable, uh, but if one were to turn off Facebook and Twitter and a bunch of these other things, um, is the prevalence of social media uh, the primary reason why disinformation seems to be more effective now uh, than, than it was in past periods? Yeah, I, I think that first, the first point I'd say is that, you know, bad information, disinformation has existed since time immemorial. It is fundamentally at its heart, not the technology that created it. It's, it's a human problem. However, what's happened in the last 30 years is that the architecture of our information ecosystem has changed so rapidly that we as a society simply have not been able to keep up. So if you look at the huge kind of transformations and breakthroughs in human communication, so the invention of the printing press, which arguably changed the history of um, humanity, you know, the reformation wouldn't have happened without the printing press, to the invention of photography. There were 400 years between that. So society could kind of catch up, learn to navigate the new environment. But over the past 30 years, we've had the internet, social media, smartphones, and now we're starting to go into the age of synthetic media where AI can basically fake any video or any audio clip. We have not been able in the age of information to build any safeguards into our information ecosystem. And the other thing, you mentioned the social media platforms, is that we have these new arbiters of power who are not accountable to the people. You know, they're not elected. So, I think there's a very, very important debate to be had. And I welcome, you know, your interventions in this field, because I think this is going to be one of the most important political questions to get right. Very important debate to be had about who controls the information ecosystem and who benefits from it. And why do we not have more safeguards? Because we certainly need to. And so that's where uh, I'd like to turn our attention. So let's take as a given, which I agree, and I, I agreed before I read your book, and now you know it's it's all the more compelling that number one, um, that there are foreign actors that want to foment unrest and mistrust in American politics and American life, American society. And I think most people listening to this or watching this would agree. Yes, that's happening. Two that the tools that they use to do so are getting more and more powerful and compelling. Um, and three, now the way we get information through social media, um, the fragmentation of media and the polarization also makes it so that the techniques that they use will become more powerful and harder to stop. So let's take those three things as, as true, which I totally agree, they're all true. Uh, we can all see it and feel it. Uh, so now let's imagine that um, I'm the president or you're talking to the president. I know you, you've been a, a advising the Biden campaign. Um, is that correct? I advised Biden on deep fakes uh, two years ago when they two started. Two years ago. Pretty, yeah, pretty recent vintage. Um, 
what are the safeguards and countermeasures that we could install? Because a lot of people listening to this right now, Nina, are like, oh my gosh, like I give up. Like I think I'm watching Andrew Yang talk to Nina Sheik, but maybe I'm not. <laughs> like, you know, this whole thing could just be like a giant fabrication, which it could be theoretically. Uh, how do we know? So, so you do make some suggestions, but would love to talk to you about what possible solutions look like. What could we do if, let's say, hypothetically, we have control of the government of the United States of America, 2021, we look up and say, all right, we have to address this problem. Yeah, I mean, the first step, I think, I mean, as the old adage goes, knowledge is power. So the first step is just understanding what's going on, how the entire information ecosystem has been corrupted, and how this is playing out in all its dimensions from kind of the crazy geopolitical information warfare to homegrown domestic disinformation and how that's corroding our political system. And I would say it's an existential threat to Western democracies, as well as how, you know, any company owner, any business owner, or any private individual can be impacted by this as well. So I think first thing is putting it in a conceptual framework and understanding how fake porn is related to deep fakes, Donald Trump, Russian interference. Once you have that, then you can start looking at solutions. And broadly, the solutions kind of fall into two categories. The first is the technical solutions. So building the AI software to detect video manipulations because as right, synthetic so media... So, so, yeah, so let's start with that, Nina. Like, let's say you're Russia and you make 100 synthetic uh, media videos and audio recordings. Do we have the technology right now that could go through and be like fake, 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 and then there's like one real one in there and be like real? <laughs> so, right, ish is the answer because there are several kind of deep fake detection tools, but given that they can be generated using different kind of um, machine learning systems, there's no one detection tool that can detect them all. And the other crazy thing about trying to build the detection tools is that because of the way that this AI works is that the better your detection ability gets, the better the ability to generate, right? So every time you think you've built a really cool piece of software, AI software to detect all the fakes, um, you're giving the person who's making the fakes uh, a foot up. So it's always going to be a cat and mouse game. So you're going to build the detection tools, the bad guys are going to find a way to beat you. So there's never going to be one way to detect them all. Um, Right now, again, this has only been around for about two and a half years. So there are some tools out there. There's no one universal tool is the short answer. Could you have a tool that gives you like a spectrum of probability where you could say this thing is probably real, this thing might be fake uh, within like a certain measure of confidence? I get that you can't categorically say real fake, but you could be like, we think this one's probably real or we think this one's probably fake. Yeah. And, and that is how those detection tools work right now. The ones that are already out there, they're like, oh, this is 90% probably synthetic. Um, but uh, I would say that because we're just at the start of this synthetic media revolution, like we haven't actually come to the stage yet where it's ubiquitous. But in four years time, when it is time for the next election, some experts who I speak to think that as much as 90% of video content online could be synthetic. So- Oh so gosh. <laughs> there is an urgency, which isn't 
so it hasn't hit us yet, but in four years' time, we're looking at something completely different. I actually think this election is more likely to be disrupted by something called the liar's dividend. Because if we live in a, in a world, Andrew, where anything can be faked, right? Including video, which we tend to see as authentic, right? Which is why video evidence in court is so powerful. If everything can be faked, then everything can also be denied. And that is something called the liar's dividend. And you already see that happening now. And this is something that's only going to get more potent as time goes on. There's actually one candidate, a Republican candidate standing for Congress who took the George Floyd video, that powerful video, which unleashed a movement, not only across the US, but across the world. And she's written a 24 page document saying that it's a deep fake. So you're going to see a lot more of that. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Okay, so there isn't an easy technical fix. Uh, you can have some AI tools that catch some degree of uh, synthetic media or some proportion of it, but not enough where you can say problem solved. So what else? What what else lies in the technical? Okay, so so that the one the first part of technical solutions is detection. The second part is provenance, right? So you actually try to prove what media is authentic, and this is going to become increasingly important for like activists, journalists, people who are trying to record something and hold. Um, someone either to account as a kind of human rights abuse or to show that what they have done is authentic. And you basically try and embed that into almost the hardware of your phone or your camera. It's almost like a watermark, which is indelible. You can't tamper it. So that always is shown to be authentic. So those are the kind of two technical solutions, detection and provenance. But ultimately, this isn't a, this isn't 
a technology problem in the sense that the technology here until, I mean, we have fully sentient AI, which we don't, the technology is just an amplifier of human intention. So the real solution comes with policy, legal, uh, digital, uh, digital literacy and education. Um, this is something that just the technology isn't going to make go away. It's something that society needs to grasp as a national security. And I would say, you know, one of the most important issues for the future of liberal democracy. So if you were president, I would say make the information ecosystem and the architecture of the information ecosystem, shoring that up, one of the single top most priorities of, of your presidency. So let's say it is our top priority, which from this conversation and your research, it really should be. Um, and I love the idea of investing in provenance in a particular way, because what, what it suggested to me was that if you have a photographer, literally their camera on in the hardware says that Nina took this photo. And so you could be almost like this official documenter of truth and your camera becomes this uh capture of reality and everyone knows like well this photo was taken by nina's camera there's no faking it this is this was actual truth uh and so you could end up investing in various devices individuals organizations we know your stuff is real uh you know you took it on your camera you'd be like yep that was me on on, on my camera and i was there and then we can have greater confidence in it I think that's the kind of investment that would make a lot of sense. Um, and it sounds like that technology is available to us. It's just we're not using it. Is that correct? It's being built. So you have companies like Trupic, Adobe, Qualcomm. They're working on these type of solutions. And again, because this is such an emerging field, it's something that they hope that will be uh, built and then adopted as industry standard within the next you know, two to five years. So the technology is being built, but then there's a bigger question of, does everybody utilize it? You know, does, does it become kind of the industry standard? So in an ideal situation, you would see that there are kind of detection tools that are inbuilt into social media platforms because there's going to be so much synthetic media that it simply isn't going to be possible for a human content moderator to go through each of them and say, well, this is fake, this isn't fake. And Moreover, they won't be able to tell because to the human eye, it's going to be impossible to distinguish. But on the other hand, you're also hopefully going to have all this authenticity uh, software inbuilt into um, the platforms and every, every point at which we engage with the kind of information ecosystem. But there needs to be political will. And that's the real problem, because right now there are too many political actors who have a vested interest in the information ecosystem being broken, right? Unless there's political will and society-wide uh, adoption for this kind of architecture of our information ecosystem, it's just not going to work. I agree with that. I agree that you need uh, a government in place that says, look, this is a massive priority and we need to... Uh, invest in it accordingly. Are there private actors, let's call it Facebook, let's say someone from Facebook's watching this and they know that these deep fakes are uh, here and growing. Uh, they know it could be disastrous for ultimately their, their business. Uh, you have these companies like Qualcomm that are investing in the watermark technology. Could you 
develop a standard independent of government? Like, could a, a bunch of leading companies come together and say, look, it's good for us, good for our businesses, if we all just say these things are true, these things we don't know if they're true or not, uh, and not wait for government to get its act together? Yeah, and that is really what some private actors are starting to do right now. So um, Adobe is leading the content authenticity initiative with um, Getty Images, the New York Times, the BBC is involved in another similar kind of authenticity uh initiative with Microsoft. So a lot of the work towards this is actually already coming from the private sector. Um, you've also had kind of the big platforms engage with deep fakes. So kind of Facebook and Amazon did this deep fake detection challenge where they were trying to sponsor uh, various kind of AI solutions to find the fakes. However, um, I think the platforms have to be more thoroughly engaged, shall we say, because they have become, like I said, the arbiters of power in this new information ecosystem. So even though sometimes they're seen to be doing something like launching a deep fake detection challenge, too often, as the past 10 years have shown us, um, they've been slow to act on disinformation and misinformation. And that has played out with devastating consequences, not only in the Western world, but across the world. No one here believes that uh, Facebook's <laughs> going to necessarily get their arms around this problem. I mean, it's, it's obvious. And it, the upsetting thing um, is that it, it seems like Facebook's approach is to wait until they have absolutely no choice because of some um, de degree of disaster or political or public pressure. Um, so I agree with you that, you know, they, they're probably right now uh thousands and thousands of deep fakes on facebook and then they're running this detection challenge over on the side but you know like in the, the right now there there's uh not the right level of energy uh or urgency which we've seen again and again from them uh this is a massive uh challenge and priority so those are the technical approaches and then that was like the first segment then you had another segment yeah, you were thinking of. Was that the public and political? Yeah, the public and political. And I will say, I mean, this would be my plea to you. This is why we need people like you in public life, people who understand how the technology of the exponential age is reshaping politics. I mean, my whole shtick is talking about the information ecosystem. But as you know, there are far broader applications than that. The whole age of automation, which you've often spoken so eloquently about, but we need people like you who understand how technology is reshaping politics and society and then can communicate that to the public in a way that they understand what's at stake here. Then only can I hope that there is kind of the political and public will galvanized in order to make this uh, the priority, which I believe it needs to be, because I think there's a short window in which something can still be done. And otherwise, the kind of vested powers that benefit from the information ecosystem being the way that it is, it becomes increasingly difficult to do anything about it. And the crazy thing, of course, is that they're unaccountable to, to the electorate. This will play out, I think, differently in different parts of the world. So specifically in America and the West, I'm talking about the social media platforms. But of course, in places like China or Russia, where you have a more authoritarian regime, it will be the government that benefits from this. So I think we really need to have 
a public debate about who are the arbiters of power in this new era of exponential technological change? What does it mean for privacy and security? And how do we get kind of the public support to do something about it? I agree with you. And thank you for uh, putting this on, on my doorstep <laughs> because, I, as I, uh, because I agree. <laughs> So right now in the United States, we have deep skepticism of the media. Uh, I think the trust in media that um, I saw most recently was 41%, the major media organizations. And it runs the gamut uh, along party lines. So if you are a Democrat in the United States of America, you trust the national media at a higher level, let's call it 58% or 60%. And then independents are around 40%. And then Republicans are at something like 20%. <laughs> so, so that's the, and it's been migrating downward over time. So that's where we are right now. So then if you go and say, look, we have to get our arms around this uh, and establish what the heck is real and what's not real, like what's true and, and false, you have a significant proportion of the American people already that are like, whatever you're doing, like, I don't trust it, it's nonsense, like, you, you know, you're, you're trying to control me, control us. Uh, and there's a very, very deep heritage in the U.S., um, which I agree with, uh, of freedom of the press, freedom of information, like censorship is terrible. And it seems like if you're trying to establish what's real or true, then what you're really trying to do is censor the heck out of uh, a bunch of people. So that's like the, the current landscape. Um, and then you go to them and say, no, look, this is a massive problem. Like, you don't even know if I'm real right now because I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you on like a, a video screen. Uh, so we would need to line up, in my view, major media organizations, major technology companies, uh, nonprofits, and the government, and get everyone together and say, all right, like, let us try and establish some standards, some rules of the road to say that uh, you have to use these devices. And if you don't use these devices, then uh, it will be marked as don't know if this is real, uh, you know, and, and that can include our cell phones. So at least, you know, if I take a cell phone video, it's attributed to me. And like, you know, so it's not like you necessarily need to have a giant camera from um, from CNN or wherever. But like th there needs to be some uh, prominence to your point. There needs to be some kind of chain of ownership uh, of this. And then someone like puts their name on it and says, yeah, I was there and, and that happened. Um, so that's the challenge is trying to bring that coalition together and then try and get this trust in whatever standards you establish um, to rise over time uh, in American life. And it is, it's interesting how it does fall along party lines in various ways. Yeah, I mean, it's a massive challenge. And unfortunately, I think the problem is probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, if you look at how polarized um, and divisive kind of the American political debate is right now and then inject the kind of the coming age of synthetic media into that, I think it will, the outlook looks difficult to say the least. However, I'm hopeful that as things get worse, um, you can take this networked approach as it becomes conceptualized as this national priority um, that it can be approached, this network approach, and this is the only way it's going to work. If you look at 
other places where society-wide mobilization to disinformation has been really effective. Take, for example, the small Baltic state of Estonia, some three million people. They've often been in the eye of kind of Russian disinformation campaigns. And they've really turned it around by basically adopting what you just pointed out, which is a whole society-wide mobilization where you have kind of industry, working with policymakers, working with citizens, working with NGOs. But taking that networked approach is really difficult. Um, and I would say that if the current presidency continues in the United States, then that challenge becomes even more difficult because what's quite clear is that the president has a vested interest in making sure that the information ecosystem is corroded. He is one of the biggest purveyors of disinformation. And if this continues for another four years, I find it difficult to see the way back for the United States. So it's a big so challenge that, that and, I is, I could, and I wish I could. No, that's the argument that so many people are making is that we can't handle four more years of Trump. I happen to agree with that. I, I think that four more years of disintegration uh, will lead us to a point where it, it's very difficult to come back. Um, though many people think of it for different reasons than what you're describing, Nina, but th there have been folks who've said that U.S. democracy itself is on the line. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all, because if, I mean, a democracy can only work, a liberal democracy can only work if you have some kind of objective reality and some commitment to truth and the pursuit of truth. If the pursuit of truth no longer matters, then the only thing that matters is power and who has the power to control narratives. So that then ends up becoming very authoritarian. The other places in the world where the only thing that ma matters is the authoritarian nation states. And it's no exaggeration to say that American democracy is on the line, not only with implications for the US, but for the rest of the Western world, which is why, you know, with my kind of background in geopolitics and European politics, we're always looking towards the United States because we know that whatever happens in the US is really a, a harbinger for the rest of the Western world. So we're watching with tenterhooks as to what happens in November. Wow, lots of lots of pressure on the U.S. to get this thing right. Uh, you know, I I just thought of a I just thought of a name for this effort uh, that needs to be built. Um, something like the Coalition of Authenticity, um, because everyone wants something to be authentic. Like I, I don't think that anyone could be angry at that, and that's really what we're trying to to shore up is the fact that if I say something happened, I recorded it, then it was authentically um, documented because uh, I, I was thinking frankly Nina about you know other things that just sound very heavy-handed and authoritarian where if you had like that you know if you use the word truth and everyone would be like oh would <laughs> immediately become very very angry because that's Orwellian it's like we're the ministry of truth we're here to tell you what, what's true uh, so you, yeah. you so you want to focus just on whether the event actually happened uh, whether it authentically was documented and, and you need a robust political debate about, because all of the things that you already mentioned, the strong tradition, freedom of expression, um, you know, freedom of speech, all of these tenets that are fundamental to our democracy, we don't, of course, want to lose these. However, we need to be realistic in terms of how quickly our information ecosystem has changed and how we as a society need to keep up with that. And too often we've 
kind of allowed the cool technology to be built saying there's going to be no downside, but we know that it's just an amplifier for human intention. So while there is all this upside, what's becoming very clear is that there's all this downside and we kind of need to do something about it before it runs away. Um, so I would say society needs to catch up with how quickly our information ecosystem has changed and we can still do it while remaining true to kind of the liberal values for freedom of expression and um, that is fundamental. Yeah, we just need to get our acts together very quickly and dramatically. <laughs> uh, that yeah. this, But this is such an important uh, it's such an important conversation and it's necessary for democracy to function uh, because if you don't have a set of facts that you can agree on or reality, then how can you uh, trust that people are able to vote in a way that uh, is supposed to be according to the will of the people and presumably in the public interest? Uh, the Coalition of Authenticity is the working title until we can think of something better that people will like better. We'll have to focus group that thing or test it. Um, but I, I'm with you and we need to build this. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity starting in 2021. Uh, but this is one reason why I am so uh, strongly for Joe and Kamala is I, I don't believe that truth will prosper in uh, another Trump administration and that really, if anything, the public trust will degenerate to a point where we're going to be unable to come together and, and get much done. Absolutely. Um, and if you look at kind of the polarization in the US in the political discourse, I mean, it predates Trump, but it is the, at the highest level it's ever been under Trump. And four more years of this kind of environment, it's, it's difficult to see how the United States can come together after that. And as I already mentioned, the implications for the rest of the world are dire as well. So we're counting on you. <laughs> yeah, counting on the U.S. I mean, yeah. uh, those are uh, right now, like a lot of Americans are like, uh-oh. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> so aside from Estonia, are there other countries that uh, you think have implemented a set of best practices that could be useful uh, for us and others? Estonia is really the best case study because they took kind of being in the eye of Soviet disinformation ever since, you know, they stopped being a Soviet satellite state in the 90s and really made it a national priority. Here in Europe, some of the European countries, we still struggle. Uh, in the UK, we still struggle as well. And that is because, again, all of this is so new. It's only really started unfolding uh, to the extent where the complete corrosion of our information ecosystem has become so prevalent is something that's really only been manifesting in the past 10 years. So we're all struggling. Estonia is a beacon of hope. Um, and a lot of the interesting stuff is actually coming from the private sector. And there's in the last chapter of my book, there's all these organizations working in civil society, NGOs who are also working towards this but it's only just getting started. So that coalition still needs to come together. One example I do cite favorably um, is the BBC because it's publicly funded um, and there are standards it adheres to. It, it issues corrections. It gets fact-checked very, very uh, diligently. And even that, when I've cited that favorably in the US, people have not liked it. I mean, like, oh, the government can't fund 
media and I'm like, well, they're doing it in other parts of the world and it's like not everyone loves it all the time, but you know, it, it's functioning at a high level and it, ma it manages to irritate people on like both sides of the political yeah. <laughs> aisle and spectrum. Uh, so is there a, a home for um, more publicly funded media as something of a counterweight to the disinformation that's out there. Cause, and, and, I, and I know a lot of Americans right now are groaning because uh, Americans don't like the idea of publicly funded media. I personally think that NPR and PBS like do great stuff. And as a parent, having my kids watch <laughs> some, some of the kids programming at PBS, it's like it's very high level. Um, but what do you think about government uh, subsidized or funded media as one counterweight? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're spot on. Actually, the BBC gets it from both sides here. So, you know, they must be doing it right because the left is always complaining of BBC bias towards the right and vice versa. <laughs> but there, there absolutely is a place for that. But even if that doesn't become something that's popular in the American discourse, and I can understand why, there are loads of fact-checking organizations that are already doing brilliant work that deserve our support um, because they really are our first line of defense. But again, I, I see how problematic it is when you think about how polarized the media sphere is in the United States, that any kind of fact-checking organization, which you or I might think is you know, being an arbiter of the truth, this becomes a politicized issue. So there's a massive catch-22. And I think part of that is because the debate in America is already so polarized and divisive. It's hard to see a way back until I think there is this coalition, this joint effort, a networked approach. Yeah, well, we have to build it. I'm just going to, to tell a dumb story from the trail. <laughs> But the, yeah. the, exa the example of the most boring yet very, very true to life programming, I think, uh, um, in American media is C-SPAN, where they just stick a camera on various events <laughs> or the congressional yeah. hearings. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what C-SPAN's ratings are. They're quite low, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> it, it was a, a relic of the cable network when they got all of their, uh, their spectrum and allowances uh, then they said, we're going to donate this channel to, to the public good. <laughs> so so C-SPAN has the most boring public interest programming there is, um, which is, has included uh, many events I did because all they did was they just stick a camera on the event. And I and so as someone who ran uh, for president, you kind of forget the cameras there. So I'll tell a story that, you know, maybe someone finds entertaining. Um, so I'm campaigning in Iowa or someplace. Um, and then I get back to the hotel. It's like 10 at night. I'm like, I'll like turn on the TV just to see what's on. And then I turn it to C-SPAN. And it's my event from earlier that day <laughs> in Iowa <laughs> because there's a C-SPAN camera. And it just like tracked the event. And then even in the receiving line afterwards, when I was talking to people, and I did not know this, when they would just come up to me and shake my hand and ask me a question, then I would answer them. Uh, the C-SPAN camera person just recorded that entire thing where there's like this entire receiving line. There's no commentary. All it is is just an hour and a half of receiving line and Andrew Yang Town Hall um, in, in Dubuque or wherever it was. So, uh, so that is what 
public programming or programming in the public interest uh, could look like. Very, very low ratings. <laughs> you, know, you can imagine the, 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 this thing that has a watermark being like, this is definitely happening. Like, you know, I've got like the, the C-SPAN camera watermark on it. Um, but uh, I, I believe that that this is something that we have to aggressively fight for, that, that there needs to be some kind of investment in authenticity and what really happened and uh, presenting like a version of reality that voters can evaluate um, in a way that C-SPAN example is like so pure is that it's so dull, but there was no commentary at all. It was just Andrew Yang talking to people and then the receiving line. Uh, and, and even now, Nina, like I'm a media commentator Tater, as I think you are too, <laughs> and whatnot. And so they, they they have this thing where this this event that we all saw just happened, and then they're like, "What do you think just happened?" And then uh, and and often what the commentators say ends up being uh, very influential in terms of the public conversation or public evaluation. Yeah, and which is why I mean everybody who has influence in this new information ecosystem has a, has the responsibility. You know, if it weren't for this new information ecosystem, then you know someone like President Trump, who uses Twitter as his global megaphone, would not have the audience that he does have. So it is incredibly. I, I would agree with you, but the point I would make then, again, as as something that we all need to be aware of, is that single influencers are often more trusted in this day and age than any kind of traditional or established media. Now that can be also because they're a purveyor of disinformation. And I think that is like the interesting thing about the coming age of synthetic media as well, because it will take the democratization of disinformation one step further. When yep. any YouTuber can basically create a video, a piece of manipulated video, which right now is only in the domain of a Hollywood studio, right? Somebody with loads of special effects artists and a multi-million dollar budget. I mean, you can look at some of the deep fake stuff on YouTube, but there's um, one guy who's taken The Irishman, you know, Scorsese's latest film, which he spent millions on with a three-ray camera, and he just took free AI software to kind of do the de-aging. And arguably what he did, one YouTuber with some AI is much better than what Scorsese did with his special teams of special effects artists and special camera. So we're entering an age where anybody can be an influencer, which can be used for good, but it can also be used for bad. And with synthetic media, it means that anybody can actually alter your perception of the world. So you can get very philosophical about it. But it is, I think, again, my book is just to lay it out, to put it in a conceptual framework, to say, this is what's happening, because I think the first step is understanding. And then only can we start really talking about technical policy and society-wide solutions. And this is where I hope someone like you will take this into on your platform into the public sphere, because I think it is one of the most critical issues of the next decade. Well, the next few years, really. Mission accomplished, Nina. Uh, the infocalypse <laughs> is here. And we have to try and fight it and make it so that we can survive this time. Um, I agree with you that I think the public trusts individuals um, more instinctively than 
media organizations at this point. And I benefited from that public trust uh, where there are a number of podcasters that had me on their shows. And then because uh, they were supportive, then their followers or the people that viewed it also became supportive. So I benefited from that relationship. And I now I believe I'm sort of part of that where there are folks who, who will watch this and because they, they uh, think that I'm an honest actor. Uh, but I agree with you that there are folks who are not very honest actors who also can develop massive followings. Um, and in some cases, it, it might be more, um, frankly, easy for them to de- develop massive followings because you can do something that's inflammatory that a lot of people are kind of waiting for uh, because a lot of people want to say, like, I knew it. Like, I knew those people were up to no good. I knew that, you know, there was uh, this conspiracy at work. Like, you know, that, that's a human impulse. And if you want to develop a big following, you can feed that impulse, become very uh, popular. And, and then what's your next move? You guys got to keep feeding it. Like, there, there are folks that have that relationship, too. Uh, so what you you call the infocalypse, like I, I've thought about as the cacophony. It just like at, at some point you have so many voices uh, shouting that it's Im- impossible to discern what the heck is going on. Uh, and then one of the things that many rational people do is check out. They're like, everyone's too angry, too shrill. I don't know what the heck is real from not real. And, uh, you know, it's not realistic for me to invest, you know, like hours and hours of time, like trying to figure out, uh, like fact checking everything I see, you know, like, like <laughs> you know, people aren't really wired that way. Um, so I am on, on board. Your mission is now my mission. And uh, we have to try and give people a sense of what's real so that we can make uh, real decisions about how to solve some of the problems. And this now is, like, you know what, what this is, Nina? Like, this is a problem that prevents us from solving other problems. Uh, and so that, and so that, that's where my attention is focused right now is, um, is we have to fix the machinery of democracy. Uh, and at this point, it's not enough to try and get the right people embedded into the machine. You have to try and fix the machine itself. Because right now, this machine... Uh, th- this machine is breaking down in a way that even if I stuck like a good person uh, in Congress, it's not going to save us. Absolutely. Focus on the architecture, the machine. I think we're absolutely on the same page here, Andrew. I'm going to become the mechanic, Nina, and uh, I know you are too. Thank you so much for edifying us. Nina's book is Deep Fakes, The Coming Infocalypse. Uh, it's compelling, it's scary, and hopefully we will do something about it together. 